right. Good morning, church. At about 8.59, we were convinced that most of you thought we were still up at the camp out. There was uh, almost no one here, so I turned around and there's people here. Les had faith. He said, don't worry, pastor, people are coming. Um, all right, kiddos, you're dismissed. Off to class. Good to have you, uh, as always. The rest of you can open up to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to start this morning. So, you know, guys are pretty competitive, typically, and uh, Ben and I work together, and so <clears throat> there's an ongoing... Um, you know, just competitiveness that kind of goes in with that. And uh, he doesn't even know this yet, but we are in a beard race, and I'm winning. Um, <clears throat> I actually gave him a head start. I think he's been working on his for, for quite some time. He actually has been winning at the height race for a long time and the tattoo race. So I thought, I thought I'd level the score by doing this. No, these were actually a free part of the campout. Uh, it was a beard, which is kind of, kind of a cool thing. We had an amazing time last Sunday. Ben and Angel preached. We did a, a Spanglish service, so uh, the worship, the preaching, everything was done in Spanish and English, and we just had an amazing time, just kind of in God's sanctuary, uh, worshiping out there, all dirty and smelly, and um, it, was, it was phenomenal, so we really enjoyed it. Uh, those of you who were a little displaced by not having uh, your normal place to come and worship, thank you for uh, just kind of being gracious and, and allowing that to happen. It usually happens once a year. So um, anyway, there were some that, <clears throat> that drove up as well for the day, but it was, it was a really amazing time. So for the next six weeks, um, <clears throat> the series that we're walking into are, is, is pretty somber in tone. Uh, we're going to willingly walk into and wade into some topics and waters that are, that are difficult to talk about and that are, that are troubling. Um, these, are, these are things that sometimes people just avoid because it's too painful or it's too hard or we're almost afraid maybe there aren't answers or we won't like the answers that we'll get. We're going to do what we do here at this church, and that is we're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture. We're going to see what God has to say about these various things. And I'm utterly convinced that you will be gifted by God with something very, very precious, and that is perspective. Perspective is one of those gifts that God gives to us, and when we're going through difficult times, it often uh, seems to shine. This is a lyric from a song I heard a couple weeks ago, and as I was thinking about this series, it really popped out to me. There's a lot packed into this lyric. When the nightmare finally does unfold, perspective is a lovely hand to hold. You know, when the nightmare finally does unfold, none of us is immune from the nightmare. None of us is immune from difficult things. And perspective in those times becomes a treasured gift. It was some time ago now that I was looking at our worship schedule, and I was looking at <clears throat> what at the time was just sort of an inward working title between some of the staff and I was our SAD series. It was just all the difficulties of life. We didn't know what we were going to call it. And, um, and I noticed that on the schedule, the way it fell, we're going to start this series on September 11th. Fifteen years ago, Americans vowed to never forget, right? Uh, I wasn't there, but uh, by all accounts of people who were on the ground, it was this glorious morning in New York City 15 years ago today. And things started off in this, in this very normal, routine way. There had just been a stormy night the night before, and it was this crystal clear New York morning, and people got about doing their lives. Many went off to work that day and never said another word to their loved ones. No one in that building 
uh, and in the other locations knew that wrath had come. In the form of, of, of terrorists, in the name of Allah, wrath was approaching them, and they had no idea that was happening. The nightmare had come. Think about the perspective that that day provided for all of us as we watch things unfold on our TV. If you had a fight with your spouse that morning, if you were worried that your kids aren't following through well on their schoolwork or homework, uh, if you had some big deadline that you were stressed out about and you were absolutely miserable to be around that day, as you watched those planes crash into the buildings, as you watched this horror unfold at the Pentagon, what you realized was this. The things you thought were important a few minutes ago were suddenly put in their, in their place by perspective. All of a sudden, that argument you probably had with your spouse that morning, man, you probably just wanted to get home and hug your spouse. The worry and the sort of nagging that might be going on with your kids, you're just like, I just want to get my kids around me. I am so thankful that we're together right now in this moment. If you had this big deadline and you were stressed and running around like a chicken with your head cut off, all of a sudden you realize, man, I, I'm just grateful to be employed. I'm grateful to be alive. Why? Because you were gifted perspective in some really, really difficult times. <clears throat> There's sort of a soundtrack um, that goes on to, to this topic. And if you've been paying attention, all four songs we just sang um, really resonate with this theme. Right in the middle of your Bible is a hymnal. It's called the Book of Psalms. And those are songs that are, that are sung by people. We sing many of them. In fact, we try to highlight when we're singing a song that the lyric is taken directly out of Scripture. And there's a whole genre in the songs. If you were in a music store, remember those? They used to have actual music stores. Uh, now you just click to this genre. There is a genre of music called lament. Songs of sorrow. And Psalm 44 says this, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? As we wade into these difficult waters, there are lyrics and music that sort of give voice to our groaning when we don't even know what to pray. We don't even know how to speak about it, what to talk about. I have found so much great comfort, not just in the Psalms of the Scripture, but in songs that we sing as a community that give voice to sort of my inner groanings and the, and the difficult things that I can't put words to. My encouragement to you, church, is to allow music and spoken word on these Sundays to be a balm for your soul, to maybe help even clear a path of focusing on some realities. We sang some realities, some truth this morning. He is faithful. I mean, we're going to sing these truths that, that even though the, the problems persist, God, you are faithful. <clears throat> Let me pray. God, just now as we turn to the pages of Scripture, as we look to you, God, for guidance, for hope, I pray, God, that we would be fully present. I pray, Lord, that you would... Help me, God, as I try to communicate your heart for this, your wisdom for this. Lord, I thank you so much for the community of believers that we have, the family that we get to come and lean on. Father, I pray that, um, that you would shape and mold us as you would see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title for the series is Turbulence. 
<clears throat> and uh, I wonder if anyone in this room, you could raise your hand if you would. Anyone, anyone what you would classify a nervous flyer? Any nervous flyers in here? Okay, Nervous flyers, you can kind of spot them, right? I mean, they're, uh, if you're a drinker, you know, they've got a drink in their hand early on. Um, there's a lot of white knuckling going on. At any jolt, you know, there's just like the conversation stops and you look around like, what's, what's happening? Um, I think if you're able to read the English language and you're on an English-speaking you know, flight, um, I think we all should be nervous flyers. Um, you come in and you sit down, and here's what you're greeted with. Fasten your seatbelt. Okay, that's reasonable. But then the next line, use cushion for flotation device. Wait, what? Uh, and then you try for some reading to kind of calm you down. And there's pictures of planes pointed down, people leaping from the plane onto a giant slide. There's smoke in the cabin, and people are crawling along in the image. People curled up in a ball. That kind of freaks you out. So you go, you know, what else is in here? And you're like, well, this is a cute little trash bag. Wait, what? It's a barf bag? What is going to happen on this flight? Right? And you're starting to ponder. And just as you're thinking through this, you hear over the intercom, in case of a water landing, and you just, you know, you want to go running from the plane. There are signs everywhere when you get onto a flight that this may not just be a smooth, comfortable trip. In fact, it may not just get bumpy. Uh, it may be deadly. You better buckle up. What a picture this is for life, right? I mean, there are signs everywhere that there is turbulence, not only possible, but probable, and no one is immune from it. Think about how turbulence happens on a plane. We all experience it together at the same time and location, right? So there might be some tiny variances, but we all went through the same thing. The way that turbulence happens in life is that it's as individual as everyone's hairstyle this morning is. There are some common similarities. It's as common to go through turbulence as a human being as it is to breathe and to eat. But your pain, your turbulence, is not experienced by a whole group of people that can rally around exactly the same time in exactly the same way and know exactly what you're going through. Instead, it's individualized. The other trauma to this is it's often internalized, and we can't even give voice to it. It's like that ache in your knee, the pain, and you're like, well, it's sort of in here, maybe like two inches or an inch. I don't know exactly. That's different sometimes than an open gash that you can, that you can see your pain and treat what you can see. You know, Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We live in a culture that runs from those things and protects themselves from those things at all cost. As Christians, here's my question leveled at all of us. Are we? Are we men and women of sorrows? Are we acquainted with grief? Or do we shut that topic out because it's simply too painful and scary and I like my comfortable life more than reality? As Christians, we are going to follow Jesus in every regard. And that means that if the scriptures talk about pain and sorrow and grief, that's where we're going. We're going to talk about those things as well. Hiding your head, burying your head is not an option. I want you to note something from the picture. <clears throat> right in the midst of turbulence, there's light shining on you. Do you see that? 
That's not how it feels, is it? When you're in the midst of it, you cry out with the psalmist, Where are you? Wake up, God! Aren't you supposed to be my protector? And yet God's light is always shining on you. It just so happens there's two yous in this word, which is perfect, because that's a picture of community, right? God is shining on all the individual yous in this room right here. And collectively, we form a people who cry out to and cling to God in the midst of every kind of circumstance that life throws at us. We're going to touch on a lot of different specific turbulence categories, pain and sorrow and loneliness and failure, and what it's like to be wronged. But I thought we'd start right here with this word brokenness. Because brokenness is sort of this overarching idea that may encapsulate some of these other ones. And it's something that the Bible speaks to quite clearly. It may help provide some variety for us. Raise your hand if you've ever broken something that was absolutely beyond repair. Okay? Probably most, most of us. Okay? Um, I was in China in 2005, and I went to the place in China where China pottery is from. Like, that's where it was founded. It was, you know, China's a big place. I go to the place where, where China is, is from, and I buy Becky. I'm on, this, I'm on this missions trip, so I'm not spending any money but I buy Becky this beautiful vase, and I thought, how cool is this going to be? I'm going to buy Becky this amazing vase, and you know where the story's going already, I can tell. Uh, but I buy her this beautiful vase from China, in China! And, I, and I, bring it, you know, I bring it to my bag, and we're in the airport one time, and we're trying to make one flight to another, and this happened on the way home with our kids as well. Chinese airlines are wild, I'll just say that. They just are like, you're, not, you're no longer doing this flight, you're going to do this one over here. Cool. So we grab our bags, and there's this one little piece of paper that was going to say that it's okay to go from here to here. And all of us had just kind of shoved it in a bag somewhere because we didn't think we were going to need it. Well, with this change, all of a sudden we needed that. And so I've got Glenn Miller uh, over my shoulder, and we're all, trying, we're all hustling around, and I can't find my little paper, right? And so I'm already thinking, Lord, give me the gift of Chinese language because I think I'm going to live here for a while. And I'm digging around, and I remember opening this bag, and I take the first thing out, Evidently, my beach towel wasn't a protective enough covering for the vase. And the second it shattered on that hard um, Chinese airport, my heart just sank. I mean, we're, Becky and I aren't the most materialistic people, but there was something just sort of significant about this vase. I thought, oh, this would be such a fun thing to just treat my wife to. And it shattered into a million pieces under that towel. I found the silly little paper. I made the flight. But that vase ended up in the trash. Absolutely no good. There was no point in saving that vase. Now, just so you know, kind of a happy resolution that Glenn Miller had also bought a vase. And in our house today, sitting in this prized little location in our armoire, up high, 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 far away from children and a large dog is that vase. And that vase represents a couple things. One is I just go, wow, thank you, Glenn. Glenn gave me the vase that he had bought for Patty, for his wife. It was just such a cool gesture. He was right there with me, and he saw just sort of the, the, the shattering impact of that. But here's what got me thinking. You know, the, the word redemption, the word healing, the word restoration, these are words that are absolutely precious to the Christian faith, aren't they? I mean, we hold on to these like they're actual real things, because they are. 
But I think some people view words like those things uh, somewhat like this. They, they view them as, yes, there's restoration, yes, there's healing, but it's a little bit like taking that vase and gluing it back together. Now, if I glued that vase back together, it would be a sweet gesture, but would that erase the loss of the vase? Absolutely not. You would never again have the vase that you once had in all of its shining glory. It's a sweet gesture. It's kind of cute. It's neat that you took the time to glue it back together. But the loss is real. And I'll never, ever, ever have it the way it's supposed to be. Isn't that how many people view the grace of God? I think that our brains go to, yeah, yeah, I know there's restoration, I know there's healing, I know we can be repaired, but there's this deep, significant loss. It will never be that way again. The Bible tells a completely different story about this. The Bible tells a story that God's able to turn real loss into real gain. God has this capacity to take real brokenness and form something new and oh so improved. God's able to absorb the sting of death and from that give the glorious new life. This grace and restoration and healing is not a patch job where we just kind of put a shiny happy face on it. It is real loss turned into real gain. But there's a road that sort of takes us through that that is not so fun. We live in a broken world today, and if you look around, um, it's not hard to view society and relationship and bodies and stuff as just broken. It's broken or it's in some varying process of being broken. Something's broken, break quick like a plate on the floor. Something's break slowly over time like relationships and our bodies and society. And when it does, we're left without. It's not like we just can regain that something or other. We experience the pain of loss. But here's what the brokenness I want to talk about this morning is this. Not all broken is bad, right? Some things are actually only useful as they are broken. So think about an egg for a moment, okay? Whether your egg is birthing a little chick or whether it's adorning your bacon on your breakfast table... Um, it's only useful once it's broken, right? It does no good to sit there and, and not be broken. You guys have used these before. Listen. Can you hear that? Oh. Oh. Who, who would allow such brokenness, right? This becomes, this becomes useful only as it's broken. Now, um, I do this too. Haley, you're the chosen one. Now, this is not like catching the bouquet at a wedding where whoever gets this is the next person to receive brokenness. Um, can, I, can I put this on your neck? Turn around. We'll give you the brokenness necklace. Okay. So you get to wear this now the rest of the morning as a little sign. Thank you. Thank you, Haley. <clears throat> Um, I don't know how many of you have memorized Matthew 26, 26. Anyone? I don't anticipate that you've memorized this verse. But in Matthew 26, 26, it says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and did what? He broke it. 
the bread fulfills its purpose once it's broken and passed around. Now, here's the deeper truth that that is pointing to. When he breaks the bread, what does he say? He says, take and eat. This is my body. The deeper truth that he's pointing to is this. What is our access to God? It's the broken body of Jesus Christ. That brokenness is how we have access to God. It's the door through which we must walk as sinners. So it turns out that some turbulence is not only just tolerable, but some turbulence is necessary. If you want to jot some notes down, I'm going to give you three things. Write down this. Brokenness is necessary. Brokenness is necessary in the way that God has set up his kingdom. I want to tell you two biblical ideas that you may not actually believe in. They're utterly biblical, but you may not believe in them. Ready? Here they are. Pruning and sifting. Pruning and sifting. We say we believe in these things, but we're a little bit like Job's friends. Job's friends came to Job, and what would someone give me sort of the general, the general sense of their advice to their beloved friend Job, who just went through unbelievable trauma, one after another after another, and he's at a point of total loss. His friends come and gather around him, and this is a real question, expecting a real answer. What is some of the, the input? Paul. That's exactly it. If you could kind of boil it down, right? They boiled it down to this. Come clean, Job. Ben, you must be sitting on a whopper of a sin to have God point all this destruction and trauma at you. Repent. Turn from it. Confess it. Maybe God will then have mercy. Isn't that the general picture of their advice? There's lots of words, but that sums it up beautifully. I think that we have a more accurate theology in our head, many of us. But don't our actions reveal our actual beliefs? So so our practical theology always trumps our intellectual theology. What we act on is what we actually believe, right? So here's what goes on with this. Think of the last time something bad happened to you. Were you shocked that something bad was happening to you? Did it feel like a sucker punch to you? Our logic goes something like this. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. I'm basically good. Therefore, why is something bad happening to me? When something bad happens and you're filled with all the very typical questions, and by the way, I don't condemn you for those questions. I've had them myself and they're in the Psalms. There's a, there's a line in our reasoning, there's a line in our practical theology that we, that we believe this. We believe this persistent lie. Eugene Peterson, in a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this. We have been told the lie ever since we can remember. Human beings are basically nice and good. Everyone is born equal and innocent and self-sufficient. The world is a pleasant, harmless place. We are born free. If we are in chains now, it is somebody's fault. And we can correct it with just a little more intelligence or effort or time. 
How we can keep on believing this after so many centuries of evidence to the contrary is difficult to comprehend. But nothing we do and nothing anyone else does seems to disenchant us from the spell of the lie. We keep on expecting things to get better somehow, and when they don't, we whine like spoiled children who don't get their way. The Bible paints a picture of necessary turbulence, of brokenness that is absolutely from God. And that necessary turbulence offers immense hope. Here's the hope. You ready for it? There's a point to it all. There's a usefulness to it all. This is not just a random thing happening to you. This is a necessary part of you praising God. Someone said it this way, there is no making without the breaking. Think about a home being built. Think about the ground, first of all, that that yields grain, but first it it needs to be plowed. Um, Trees yield houses after they are cut down. Rocks form a foundation, but before that, they're crushed, plowed and cut down and crushed. And those are violent words. There is no making without the breaking. All this breaking precedes the building that God's doing. Look at Romans 8 with me now, verse 28. There's a great truth that's gifted to us in Romans 8, 28. And we hear and we quote this to one another all the time. Here it is. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And all the people said, amen. And we just cling to that truth. And it's so hard to sort of fit that into how life actually is. I think sometimes what happens is we latch on to these truths and they lose some of their weight to sort of keep us stabilized because we don't go far enough in our thinking. We don't really lean into it. If we were to just read on a little bit more, here's what we'd read. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me ask you this. You know the life of Jesus Christ. How was Jesus glorified? While on earth, Jesus was glorified through pain, through people spitting on him and wronging him, through weeping, and ultimately through death. Turbulence indeed, right? That's how Jesus was glorified. From his death comes life. There's no firstborn among the dead unless he first died. There's no glorious sunrise without the dark coldness of night. There's no crown on Jesus' head in glory today without the cross. He was glorified through pain. And you and I are coming after Jesus, and we are being, what does the Scripture say? Conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are people with me on this. Don't you wish there was another way? Don't you wish this wasn't how it was? God, please, I'll learn the lesson through a school book or something. I don't want to learn it through pain. You know who's right there with us? Jesus. In the garden, sweating drops of blood. What did he pray? 
God, take this cup from me. If there's, if there's any other way, take this. And then he gets to a point of surrender, and he says, but not my will, but your will be done. If Jesus prayed that prayer, certainly we're in good company to go, God, we, don't, we wish there was some other way. But pray that we would surrender in our hearts the way Jesus did to allow God's will to be done and not our own. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn over there now. If you want to write something second down, you can write this down. Brokenness is temporary. You might ask, how on earth can betrayal and injustice and murder be merely turbulence and not just a death-defying crash? Here's the reason. Because it's temporary. Betrayal and murder and weeping and injustice that Jesus went through is temporary. His life, death, and burial and resurrection tell us this. When you place the story of our trauma that we go through in this life in the context of the one great truth that Christians possess, it all makes sense. What's the one great truth of Christians? Here it is. It's resurrection. It's Easter. That's our story. If you want to lead with something about what Christianity is all about, that's what we have. We have resurrection because Jesus conquered death. We get to conquer death as well. And we get to walk right through death's door and, and be alive for, forever. That's the hope that we possess. So as a church, we don't lead with comfortable chairs, great, um, you know, great music and preaching, a phenomenal children's program, and, and all of our social justice stuff and all the orphan care that we might do. We don't lead with any of that. That's not what we have to offer. Those are phenomenal things. We love those things. But those are all just a fruit of the main thing about a Christian church. The hope that we offer to people is, is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus came to conquer our sin and our pain and our suffering. He came to restore and redeem, and it's real. When you place our stuff, our junk, our turbulence, our trauma... In the context of things, what you realize is this. It really is merely turbulence. The plane is not going down and crashing. It doesn't threaten our eternal life one bit if you are unjustly, catch this, murdered this week. If you are in Christ, even that is merely turbulence. It's not threatening your eternal life, is it? Is, is that right? Of course not. Of course it doesn't threaten it. Nothing can take us away from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 13. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith, and then skipping down, we also believe and so we also speak. Verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. That's a great truth. And bring us with you into his presence. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now listen to the effect of that reality. We have the same spirit. God raised Jesus from the dead. God's going to raise us also. Now verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
Friends, whatever you're going through, if you are in Christ, hold on to this reality. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Dawn is coming. Hold on. Don't lose heart. It's not only necessary brokenness, and it's not only temporary, but brokenness is directed. It's controlled. It's under the sovereign hand of God. Let me have you flip open to one more place, Luke chapter 22 this morning. I told you that there were a couple of concepts that you didn't believe in potentially. Maybe you believe in them in theory, but maybe not in practice. We're not going to turn there, but in John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me can accomplish much. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And then he starts talking about branches in this way. Whoever doesn't produce fruit is, is cut off. But whoever does produce fruit is pruned. Why? What's the purpose of it? You know it. So it'll bear even more produce. That the harvest would be even more plentiful. I'll be honest, that verse bums me out sometimes. I don't know if I want to be an overachiever in God's kingdom, because if I do start producing fruit, he's going to prune me, and so I can produce even more fruit. Is there a status quo version of the Bible? You know, just cruise along and put a few pretty flowers out once in a while, maybe, you know, one fruit here and there. And in God's economy, we see this in nature. We see that that pruning is painful. That brokenness is necessary, and that fruit produces all the more because of that. The other word I talked about was sifting. In Luke 22, Jesus just celebrates the Passover for the last time here on earth with his disciples. This is where he shows and instructs them on communion. And then he drops the bomb that at this table, there's a traitor. Talk about an awkward moment at a dinner party, right? I mean, there's only 13 of them around that table. One of you is a traitor. And in verse 23, they all start questioning one another. And then in verse 24, one verse later, you know what they're doing? They're arguing about who the greatest is. I mean, this is just human nature. I bet it's you, Sharon. I, I, I bet I mean, it's not, not me. It might be Michael. You know, Michael's always had a shiftiness to him. Who else? It's got to be someone else. Who? Taylor. It's Taylor, the quiet Taylor in the back. That's who it's got to be. And then all of a sudden, they just start ramping up about prideful arrogance and, and who the greatest is. And then Jesus turns greatness on his head and he instructs them about servanthood. And then look at verse 31. Right on the heels of all this prideful talk, boasting in their ability, finger-pointing, Jesus turns to Peter and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. If I'm Peter in that moment, right on the heels of boasting about who the greatest is, of finger-pointing, of all this other nonsense, and then the Lord levels his gaze at me, and he has those words. Wouldn't your natural response to the God who's revealed himself, I mean, they had the Old Testament. 
One of the ways God reveals himself is as a shelter, a protector. This God of the angel armies that we just sang about, a shield. If I'm Peter, I would envision myself saying, um, like that's got to bring a sobering tone to it. Jesus, you told him to get lost, right? Jesus, you've got me in this, right? You you gave him a beat down, right, Lord? You're going to keep me from this. Satan demanding anything from Jesus is, is, is the lowest peon on earth trying to make demands of the most powerful person on earth. And that's a bad comparison. Surely you just squashed him like a bug. And look at Jesus' very next words. He says none of that. He didn't say, I'm stepping in and I'm protecting you from I just want you to know that was a near accident. Instead, he says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, turned, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I want you to look at our title again one more time. In the little subtext is Faithful in the Storm. Primarily as we go through this series and we're talking about pain and sorrow and loneliness and failure and all the stuff that just robs us of sleep and peace. Predominantly, the faithfulness in the storm that we'll look at is that God is faithful, which is a great thing, isn't it? That it doesn't depend on our faithfulness if we get through this. God, you are faithful in the midst of our storm. We cling to your capacity of faithfulness, not our own. But there's a little tiny subtext, a partnership. It's this image bearing of God that we possess. And we see it here in Jesus' words to Peter, that we are to be faithful in the storm. Even though our life doesn't depend on our faithfulness, that's in God's hands. But we are called to be faithful in the storm. Verse 32, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What he's saying is this, you're about to get sifted. I'm not stopping this. Before building up, there's a breaking down, and you're entering into this. But don't worry, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. So as we walk forward in these different things, don't heap it all on God as if you have nothing left to do. Maybe you say, Jesus, would you pray for me too? Pray that my faith won't fail. It feels mustard seed in size right now, and evidently that's enough for you. Don't let that little flickering light go out, Jesus. I want to be found faithful in the storm as well. You know, perspective is a gift because it prioritizes what's important. There's a word in the human language that can kind of bring a little shudder to people sometimes. It's the word inadequate. Inadequate in the dictionary says this, lacking, measly, pathetic, poor. I wonder how much is invested in putting this sort of front forward to people that I'm not inadequate. How much money and emotional energy and practice and thought goes into that concept? I was at the beach a couple of weeks ago and I was with my five-year-old and I was preparing my five-year-old for the 
power and tumult of the sea. I was just prepping him because we spend a lot of time at the beach. And so it was just me and Eli out in the water, and no one else wanted to be in the water, so I wasn't on lifeguard duty, and I just got to have some one-on-one time with him. We're at Seabright Beach, and Seabright Beach is a place where there's powerful shore break. If there ever is a swell, it rarely breaks wave on water. It breaks wave on shore. And that's where things can get really, really painful. We held hands, and we both had wetsuits on, and I told him in, in advance. I, I, I told him what he would feel like doing, and then I told him what I actually wanted him to do. I said, Eli, we're going to learn about duck diving today. I said, what you're going to feel like doing is when that wave is coming at you and it's building bigger and bigger, and to a five-year-old, it's like double overhead to him. I said, you are going to want to feel like turning tail and running as fast as you can. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to hold on tight to my hand. I want you to trust me. And I want you to run straight out the wave with me when I tell you to go, okay? And if you know Eli, this doesn't shock you. Huge smile on his face. You know why? He sensed danger. I mean, he did. He saw dad was not joking around. This was no playtime. This could get serious. And this kid lights up with that. No sign of fear. Just big wide eyes going, I'm ready. Let's do this. And so that's exactly what we did. We started running towards the waves and having an absolute blast. There was a family from Nigeria that was walking up the beach, and they clearly weren't from Santa Cruz, San Jose, anywhere near here. They were all dressed in a way that no one dresses for the beach. And there are about, um, I don't know, probably six or so little siblings, cousins, all there. And this one kid, they're watching Eli out there. Another kid around their size with the same skin color. And this one kid is in his jeans. And I'll cover the mic because here's what he did. I mean, he did that four or five times. He's screaming, and he's just pointing at Eli. He cannot believe the magic that is happening out in the water. He's screaming because he's seeing this child going in with things. Here's what happened. Before long, what I was doing is I was saying, okay, I'm not going to hold your hand anymore. I'm right here. But you know now, you've got to thrust your body through that. And, and he started doing it on his own. And I would pop up and make sure, okay, we've got, a, we've got a head above water. We're good. What father on earth would tell their child to run in toward all of that potential destruction and pain and whatnot? A father who loves his child. A father who wants to prep him for other future things. See, I knew something that Eli didn't. I know what the underside of a wave looks like. I have enough experience to know that if you're a newbie, you want to run from this thing as fast as you can. You know what happens? If you're knee-deep in water, what's that water doing from the beach? It is rushing at you. And as you're trying to run away from the wave, waves will crash for the rest of time. That thing's not going to stop crashing. And if you're near the shore and you're trying to run away from that thing, you're actually running into the impact zone. I'm not going to tell you in pain and in failure and in all these other topics to run toward that, but in brokenness, hear me, I want you to lean into brokenness. I want you to move toward that. 
There's a truth in Scripture that's phenomenal. You don't pass go. You don't get started in this Christian life until you actually embrace your inadequacy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus invited us to come, but you only get in if you come in like a child. You don't come in self-sufficient. You don't come in as a know-it-all. You come in as someone who is inadequate, has come to grips with their inadequacy. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. If the start of the new life in Christ is surrender, it is sustained by ongoing surrender. Some of you would have, have had very specific seasons of brokenness, but brokenness isn't something you do once and then you're all done like a glow stick. Brokenness is something that goes on over time. And in one season, there's a certain kind of breaking. And you go, I never thought I would, I would survive that. But perspective has given me time to say, wow, I actually count that as a gift. Going through it, it was the worst time of my life up to that point. I see now God was doing something that couldn't be accomplished any other way. And that gives us hope when we begin to walk in and the captain announces over the intercom, uh, folks, you better get seated again. We might be experiencing some rough air ahead. Sometimes it's predicted. And some of you know you might be entering into some sort of some turbulent times. I read Rob a lyric to an old Lutheran hymn. Uh, actually, I didn't read it. I texted it to him. <clears throat> And it says this, it says, Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand. Choose thou the path for me. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God. So shall I walk aright. Choose thou for me, my friends, my sickness or my health. Choose thou my cares for me, my poverty or wealth. Not mine, not mine the choice in things great or small. Be thou my guide, my strength, my wisdom, and my all. And Rob texted me back something that was really profound. He said, man, that's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous, scary prayer, but you know what else it is? it highlights that it's, it's not a dangerous or scary prayer if you trust the one holding your hand through this. Is that right? We're about to sing a song that, that grabs the heart of this. And it was so cool because Rob had already picked us out. This was already on the set list. It grabs the heart of that old Lutheran hymn. And I want these words to just wash over you. If you want to join in and sing, that's fine. But I want you to really catch the lyric of this song as we sing. Let's sing, guys. <clears throat> 